Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 24 and considering the life of Christ. John chapter 14, verses 19 through 24, the life of Christ. Give attention to God's holy word. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all the things you've given to us, but especially for the ordinance of preaching. We pray, Lord, now at the end of this Lord's Day, that you would give us energy, you would give us attention, and you would give us your Holy Spirit that we might be edified and built up through this word, and we pray it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if any of you are fans of science fiction, you may know a common theme that runs almost throughout all science fiction, and that really is the problem of the android. Now, the problem of the android has to do with if, if we build a robot that looks like a human, that uh, at one level thinks like a human, maybe even sounds and acts like a human, at what point does it become a human being? This is a perennial question in science fiction. Data from the show Star Trek is one example of this question. Blade Runner, iRobot, written by Isaac Asimov and turned into a movie with Will Smith. Many other sci-fi stories explore this question. This is the same question, by the way, that, that uh, makes people worried about artificial intelligence. It's the same kind of question. If we build this thing... At what point does it become human? The question could be framed this way. At what point does a robot have life? Now, for the Christian, the answer is very easy. Though perhaps it's not very simple, but it's a very easy answer. What makes us living beings, the reason that we have life is because we have souls. God, when he created Adam and Eve, he breathed into them the breath of life, and man became a living being. The reason we have life and robots don't is because we have a soul. It is the invisible, immeasurable, meaning not able to be quantified, 
spiritual part of ourselves that defines human life. Human life is not a purely physical thing. But here's the great problem. Not all men have life, though all men have souls. Some are spiritually dead. Some are spiritually alive. How then do we define spiritual life? What does it mean to have spiritual life? What is the kind of life that Christ grants to all those that believe in him? We can frame this second question this way. At what point does a dead sinner come to life? In this passage, our Lord answers that question. He tells us what it means to have the life of Christ in us and what it means to be spiritually alive. This life involves the exercise of all the powers of your soul. It is as if uh, an engine, long sitting unused in the garage, was one day rebuilt. And the mechanic would turn that engine on for the first time after so long a time. We would say, when that engine is brought to life, now it's banging on all cylinders. It is the same with our souls. When the soul is brought to life, all the cylinders of the soul are operating the way that they should. The faculties of the soul or the the powers of the soul can be understood under two ideas. Love and knowledge. In one way to understand what your soul does, it loves and it knows. Love would correspond to the will and the affections, your chooser and your feeler. Knowledge would correspond to your mind, your thinker and your knower. And what this passage teaches us is that by walking by faith in Christ, our souls come alive with the life of Christ. Specifically, what we're going to see in this passage is that believers share in the life of Christ, which is manifested by their increasing love for and knowledge of God. Believers share in the life of Christ, which is manifested by their ever-growing and increasing love for and knowledge of God. That's what we're going to find in this passage. There's really three things uh, in this passage. Verse 19, the life of Christ by faith. Verses 20 and 21, the life of Christ manifested. And verses 22 through 24, the life of Christ matured. Verse 19, the life of Christ by faith. Verses 20 and 21, the life of Christ manifested. And verses 22 through 24, the life of Christ matured. And so we begin by looking at the life of Christ by faith. Now here's something I want you to keep in mind about faith. It's often a a common misunderstanding that faith 
involves only one of your cylinders. That faith is an operation of only one part of your soul. Either it's with the mind, or it's with the heart, or it's with the will. But you see, actually, faith is a function of your entire soul. To put your faith in Christ requires your entire being, mind, will, and affections, all of them, to rest upon Christ. It's not just something you do with your mind. It's not just something you do with your will. It's not just something you do with your affections. It's something you do with your entire being. I like the way one of the missionaries described it. He was trying to get this idea across to a, a, a native tribe in South America, I think, or, or somewhere in a very dark country. And they didn't have a word for believe in their language. So the only way he could come up with describing what faith in Christ meant was he said, if you have a chair, you sit in the chair. That's what it means to believe. You take your entire body and you rest it upon the chair. And so Christ now tells us this life of Christ by faith in verse 19 is a whole aspect. It's, it's an entire operation of the soul. But he uses a different metaphor. Notice the metaphor that he uses is sight. Look at what he says in verse 19. A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Okay, so how does this work? What Christ is describing here are two different kinds of sight. The first is physical sight. That's the sight of the world. Notice he says, the world will see me no more. Now what he's referring to is his death, resurrection, and ascension. What Christ is telling the disciples is that my physical presence is going to be taken away from the world very soon. They will not be able to see me with this physical sight. Notice in verse 25, Christ gives a hint to this. These things I've spoken to you while being present with you, present in the body. So a little while longer, the world will see me uh, no more, but you will see me. Well, what does it mean to look upon Christ with the eyes, uh, with physical sight? I think what it means is, is that the world, when it was looking upon Christ, it looked upon him while he was present with physical sight and a carnal motive. The word that's used here in Greek is a word that means to pay careful attention. It means to notice all of the details. It means to look intently for some purpose, kind of the way a hunter will look at the trees. A good hunter is not sitting in the stand, glassy-eyed and staring at the trees. Maybe if he hasn't had his coffee, that's how he looks at the trees. But a good hunter is staring at the trees, noticing all the details. He's looking at the trees for a specific purpose. He's looking for movement. He's trying to find that deer. Likewise, that's the word that John uses here for looking at Christ, seeing Christ. Several passages indicate this. John 2.23, it says that many believed in Christ when they saw the miracles that he performed, but Christ did not put his confidence in them. John 7, verses 3 through 4, Christ's brothers come to him and say, you should go to the feast so the whole world can see you. For if anyone wants to be known openly, he doesn't hide himself, but he shows himself publicly. But I think another verse that, that really captures the heart of what he's referring to 
is in Luke chapter 6, verse 7. Luke chapter 6, verse 7. This is not the same Greek word, but I think it's the same idea of how the world looks at Christ. Luke chapter 6, verse 7, starting in verse 6. It happened on another Sabbath that as he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now watch. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. That's how the world looked on Christ, paying attention to all the details to find a reason to accuse him. Well, this is how the world looks on Christ, but this is not how Christians look on Christ. Christ says in John 14, the world will see me no more. I will be taken away from their physical sight, but you will still see me. You will still be able to look upon me. Christians look upon Christ even though he's absent from us with the spiritual eyes of faith because they trust in him. Christians look upon Christ with the physical eyes of faith because they trust in him. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes and says that our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, but especially verse 2, the author of Hebrews says that we are to run the race with endurance set before us, looking unto Jesus, casting our eyes by faith upon Him because He's the one that we trust in. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, though, I think is a one of the best explanations of this dynamic, how faith enables us to see in ways that you cannot see with your physical eyes. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6, Paul speaks about the New Testament ministry and the preaching of the gospel. And in verse 3, Paul says this, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Notice it's unbelievers who are blind. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and our bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to look at Christ by faith. In the Lord Jesus, as he's presented in the scriptures, we see the glory of God in him by faith. Now keep this in mind also. Even when he was physically present in the Gospels, People saw him with the physical eyes. But if they didn't see him with spiritual faith, they didn't know him for who he really is. They could not see him in this way without faith. And so when uh, Christ tells us, the world will see me no more, but you see me, he's speaking about the life of faith. It is by faith that one must look upon Christ and know Christ. Now you may ask yourself, how do we look by faith to Christ? How do we do that? 
by taking his promises and relying on him as he is presented in them. The only way to see Christ by faith is to see him as he is presented in the scriptures. Here's a few to feed your faith. 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. 2 Timothy 2.11-13, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, For we ourselves were also sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There are thousands of other passages I could present to you this evening. But it's looking at these promises where Jesus Christ is presented to you that you look upon him by faith. Well, the life of Christ has to come to us by faith. We have to look at Christ by faith. But one of the benefits that we enjoy back in John 14, or perhaps we should say the summary of all the benefits that Christ gives to us is that those who believe will live. That's what Christ says at the end of verse 19. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. This is the summary of all the benefits of believing in Christ. It's that you share in the very life of Christ. By believing in Him, He gives you His own life. This is John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that those who believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what Christ prays for in John 17, just a couple pages over. John 17, verses 1 through 3, Christ prays this prayer. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life, to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now I want you to pay careful attention to this next verse. Look at verse 25. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. When we put all these verses together, notice what Christ is saying. What Christ gives to you and I who believe in him is the knowledge of God the Father that only he possesses. He is the first and only one who uniquely has eternal life in himself because he is the only one who knows the Father, as he says in verse 25. 
And because he is the only one that knows the Father, he's the only one that can give you the knowledge of the Father. Christ is even more explicit in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, he has this to say, one of my favorite passages in all the gospel of Matthew. Matthew eleven twenty five. at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know the rest that Christ promises here is the knowledge of the Father that he gives. And so those who believe in Christ share in the life of Christ. This is exactly what Paul speaks about in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now lead in the flesh, I lead by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the privilege of every believer. That in themselves, the life of Christ is manifested. The life of Christ is what animates them. The life of Christ is what keeps us going. The life of Christ is what causes us to continue in the way of Christ. Now, here is where many go astray. This is where many go astray. We go astray by looking on outward appearances or trusting in outward appearances. You see, the life of Christ in the heart is by faith. You can't see it. I can't see it in you, you can't see it in me. But one of the mistakes that we can make is only looking at the outward appearance and thinking that what we see in other people is something they have done. Or that what we produce outwardly is something that we have produced. When really it's the life of Christ in us. That's the only way anyone can live the life of Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says several things, verses 1 through 12. I won't read the whole passage, but he says several things. He says, um, some think of us as if we walked according to the flesh, meaning outward appearance. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Skipping down to verse 7, Paul says, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced that he himself is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. Skipping down to verse 12, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Notice what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. 
Part of your problems are that you look only at the outward appearance, and you don't recognize that it's the life of Christ by faith that is manifest in the life of the apostle or the life of all those that follow him. And so, by faith we enjoy the life of Christ. Well, what does this mean for you and me at this point? This means you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to look to Him by faith at every moment in everything that you do. Remember what Paul says, I live the life I live right now by faith in the Son of God. It's not a one-time look. It's a perpetual looking to Christ. Well, we have the life of Christ by faith, but this life then is manifested. It shows itself in certain fruits. And he begins to speak about this in verses 20 through 21. Notice the first is knowledge. As you have the life of Christ in you, you begin to grow in knowledge. Notice what he says in verse 20. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now the reference to at that day, I think refers to the day that the world will no longer see Christ. This is a reference to the ascension of Christ. He says that when this day comes, you will know that I am in the Father and that I am in you and that you are in me. We need to think a little bit, what happened when Christ ascended? The Holy Spirit was poured out. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out, he gave knowledge and insight to those that believed in Christ. So one of the first things we need to notice here is that by the life of Christ, we come to understand these deep mysteries of the faith. Notice what Christ is talking about here. You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What in the world is Christ talking about here? Well, on the one hand, he's talking about the mystery of the Trinity. And on the other hand, he's talking about the mystical body of Christ and our union with him. He's talking about two of the highest and most profound mysteries of the Christian life. The, the eternal Trinity, who is one divine being but existing in three persons, and the, the mystical union between Christ, the husband, and the bride, the church. Ephesians uh, chapter 5, Paul calls this a great mystery. And he's saying that by my life in you, you will know these things. You will understand these things. But only by my life. Paul writes in Colossians 2, verses 1 through 10. I won't read the whole passage. He says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the mystery of the Father and of the Son. Later on in that passage, he'll say that in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. And that you are complete in him. This is what Christ is referring to. This is a spiritual reality. What Christ is describing is a spiritual reality. It is therefore only known by faith. This reality that the Christ is in the Father and that Christ is in you and you are in him is something you can only know by faith. We can't measure these things. We can't draw pictures of these things. We can't film these things. They can only be known by faith. Faith relies on God's testimony. 
and then it grows in understanding. I like what St. Augustine said. He said, I believe in order to understand. I believe first, first, understanding comes later. Sight, however, tries to grow in understanding before it relies on God's testimony. You see, if, if we walk according to the sight of our own eyes and we see God's promises, we will approach God's promises trying to understand it scientifically, historically, philosophically, trying to understand all of these things before we put our confidence in them. These realities are only known by faith. And so it's by faith that we grow. Not only do we grow in knowledge, but we also grow in love. Look at what he says in the next verse. Verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Having Christ's commandments and obeying them is the love of Christ. If we love God, we keep his commandments. This is the same in all ages of the church. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Moses writes and says, I have given these things to you so that you would learn to love the Lord your God by keeping his commandments. Christ says the exact same thing here. Now we need to, again, make a distinction about the life of Christ. Whenever we talk about obedience to God's commandments... The false doctrine of merit always shows itself. You understand what I'm referring to, right? There are many who walk around believing that our obedience in some way has merit to it. It's it's somehow valuable. It's as if we had a bunch of pennies. And if our obedience, if we pile up enough pennies, we'll get a dollar. And if we pile up enough obedience dollars, we'll get ten dollars. And if we pile up enough obedience, $10, then maybe we get a prayer answered. That's what merit is. It looks at our obedience as valuable in itself. Legalism sees merit in keeping God's commandments. That's false. There is no merit in keeping God's commandments. You can earn nothing from your heavenly Father. One, because he's so far above you. And two, the things he wants to give you are so far beyond what you deserve. Love, however, notice that Christ says this is love. He who keeps my commandments loves me. Love sees grace and delight in keeping God's commandments. This is the true motivation for walking in obedience. Not that I have to try and earn something but that I love my heavenly Father. That my Father who has given His only begotten for me, what more can I do for Him than simply obeying His commandments because I love Him? Loving Christ by obeying Him, verse 21, means that the Father will love you and show you more of His glory. Now here we have a very difficult doctrine. This is a doctrine that is often confused. Notice what he says in verse 21. The one who keeps my commandments loves me. Notice, 
He who loves me will be loved by my Father. So the way that John has written this, he says that the love of the Father is dependent. It's conditional on your love to Christ. Now here, we can go astray very, very quickly. <clears throat> I'm going to read a quote from, a, from an article I was reading in preparation for this that I think helps us understand what Christ is saying here. There's an old distinction in theology between God's love of benevolence and God's love of complacency. Stick with me. Benevolence and complacency. It's useful for understanding how God's love can be conditioned upon our love. Benevolence refers to goodwill. God's love of benevolence to all of his elect is a love of goodwill. He loves them and wants to save them. God's love of complacency means good pleasure. God loves sinners and saints despite their sin with a love of benevolence. And he loves his saints for their righteousness and righteous acts with a love of complacency. We love God because he first loved us with a benevolent love. God loves us with a complacent love because we love him and keep his commandments. John 14, 21, 23. Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 13. In their exchanges with the antinomians, Thomas Gattaker and Samuel Rutherford used this distinction to uphold and explain the connection between God's love with our righteousness and righteous acts in various passages. Rutherford said that our own good works cannot make our Lord love us less or more. with the love of eternal election. However, John 14, 23 teaches that they, uh, that they may make God love us more with the love of complacency and a sweeter manifestation of God in the fruits and gracious effects of his love. Stick with me. I know this is a long quote, but just stick with me. Commenting upon John fifteen ten, the 19th century Scottish minister Charles Ross wrote, that the love of Jesus, which we secure to ourselves by keeping his commandments, is not the love of pity and compassion, but that of being under the sunshine of his smile and approbation. Let me, let me explain it this way, what Christ is saying about God the Father. I love my kids. I will never not love my kids because they're my kids. But I'm very happy when they obey me. I'm very well pleased when they do what I say. That's all Christ is saying about the love of God the Father. God the Father loves his children who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is pleased when we walk in obedience to him. He is happy when we keep the commandments of the Son of God. I have a reference to that article. If anybody wants to look at that afterwards, I can give you the reference to that article. I think it's very helpful. And so the question for us is, would you see God smile upon you today? Love him by keeping his commandments. 
You know, th- this, is, this is one of the graces of the gospel. I know in our day, this doctrine does not seem very gracious, but it is incredibly gracious. Because this clears up all of our doubts and worries. You may be in a very difficult circumstance right now. You may be in a situation where you don't know which way is up. You don't know where you should go. You don't know what to do. Love God, keep his commandments. All you have to do today, no matter the circumstance that you're in, is love your heavenly father. I like what George MacDonald, a uh, Scottish poet, some of you may be C.S. Lewis fans, George MacDonald was one of his favorite poets. And George MacDonald says this, the road to the next duty is the only straight one. The road to the next duty is the only straight one. So love God, keep his commandments, and he'll love you and show more of his glory to you. Well, the maturing of life, then we find in the the end of our passage, we won't spend as much time on this. Notice that Judas, not Iscariot, asks a question. How will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Notice that he's still confused. He's still confused about sight versus faith. He can't understand how would a manifestation of Christ not involve the whole world? How can we see him but the world can't? He's still confused about faith and sight. Notice Jesus' answer first. The way that God's people will see Jesus is through the powerful means of grace. Look at what he says. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's a means of grace, brothers and sisters. If anyone loves Jesus, he will keep Jesus' word. You know, Hebrews 11.6 says that those that come to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Diligent comes from the Latin word for love. There's several Latin words for love. Diligent comes from one of them. Therefore, if we're diligent in something, that means we love that thing. That's why Christ says, he who loves me keeps my word. The use of the means of grace displays the love of a Christian for Christ. This, in turn, provokes God's love for that Christian and greater intimacy between the soul and God. Notice what he says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Brothers and sisters, look at this promise. If you would but keep the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son will look upon your hut and say, that's a worthy abode for us. We're going to go and spend the day there. We're going to go and dine with him. You remember what the Lord did with Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was up in the tree, and Zacchaeus saw Jesus, and Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. That's the promise he makes to you right now. If you keep his word, diligently seeking him, the Father and the Son will make their abode with you. They will fill your house with a spiritual glory that all the world cannot perceive, but God's children will. We will come and make our abode with him. A couple of reasons for this. The means of grace are the only way that we have been given to get to Christ. The means of grace are the only way we have to get at Jesus. 
The means of grace also are the only promised way Christ has promised to meet with us. He who loves me keeps my word, and I will come and make my abode with him. If you want to know more of Christ, be in the scriptures. Have his word written upon your hearts. Dwell in it, meditate on it, feed on it. Whereas Paul the Apostle said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He goes on, verse 24, says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Notice how Christ guards us here. He's talking about love. And on the one hand, he says, He who loves me will keep my words. He now guards us on the other side against our own carnal and temporary emotions. When we talk about love for Jesus, it's very easy to be deceived and think, I got to have heightened emotions for Christ. I got to have intense feelings for Christ. That's what it means to love Christ. Christ says, No, no. The one who keeps my word is the one that loves me. He guards us against that error here. It is not our sentimental, carnal affection that he's speaking about, it's the deep, spiritual, loving faith that we have in Christ. Many have this kind of love for Christ. Carnal, temporary, based in sentiment. Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, the prophet is writing, and he says, Ephraim's goodness is like the morning dew. In that verse, the word goodness is hesed. Hesed means covenant faithfulness. It's another word of talking about love. Jehovah shows his love to us. We are to show our love to Jehovah. Hosea says of Ephraim, your love is like the morning dew. It's here one minute, it's gone the next. Notice also what he says. This is not his own doctrine. This is the doctrine of the Father. He says, the words I'm telling you right now are not my own words. They're the words of the Father. I think he does this because we are often so attached to our own emotions. He reminds us that it's only in the Word where your love for Christ is manifested. It has to be in the means of grace, not in our own affections. The life of Christ is a life of faith from beginning to end. It begins with faith in Christ that is manifested to ourselves and others by a faithful love for God and a growing knowledge of God by faith. This life is available to all who love God in a due use of the ordinary means. Brothers and sisters, Christ has made the promise. He has given you the means. All you have to do is ask. These blessings come upon us not because we do it the right way, not because we even really know what we're doing, but because we trust in the Lord's promise. Lord, you have said you will show me your glory. Show me your glory in this word. It comes upon us by the grace of the promise which we lay hold of by faith. For without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened. Ask, 
and you will receive. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Christ that you give to us by faith in him. And we thank you for all the means that you've appointed for us to keep and preserve that life and to grow in it. We pray, O Lord, that you would increase our faith, for we believe, help our unbelief. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.